Welcome to What's the Data Point, a public policy podcast brought to you by Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. I'm Maria Dulas from the CBC. We recently hit a milestone, 50 episodes, and want to remind you to check out some older episodes with notable guests like Deputy Mayors Alicia Glenn and Phil Thompson, the Comptrollers Tom DiNapoli and Scott Stringer, and for those who like to get in the weeds, episodes with CBC staff on ever-timeless topics like the MTA and NYCHA. Also check out our work on the web at GothamGazette.com and CBCNY.org, and remember to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's data point is one, as in the first ever female attorney general in New York State, Barbara Underwood. Barbara Underwood was serving as solicitor general when she was made the acting attorney general in May 2018 following the abrupt resignation of Eric Schneiderman. The legislature appointed her to the position later that month. What follows are remarks on the agenda of the office under her leadership from a CBC breakfast a few weeks ago. Listen to the end to hear her discussion about the political versus the policy aspects of the job, as well as the qualities she thinks are important for someone in the role, something you might consider as you cast your ballots next month. Ben will be back next week with a special co-host and special guest. Thanks for listening. It's my pleasure today to be introducing the Attorney General of the State of New York, Barbara D. Underwood. You all know how and when Barbara came to be appointed AG a little over two months ago. So let me talk about what happened in her career before that. Prior to her appointment, she had been Solicitor General of the state since 2007, initially appointed by then Attorney General Andrew Cuomo. I think when people talk about someone being a lawyer's lawyer, that's what our General Underwood is. She really epitomizes that term. She began her legal career after graduating from Georgetown Law School, where she graduated first in her class, by clerking for the U.S. Court of Appeals for Judge David Bazelon on the D.C. Circuit, and then for Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall. After more than a decade in academia teaching constitutional, criminal, law, and evidence as a professor at Yale Law School, she joined the office of the District Attorney of Brooklyn, Elizabeth Holtzman. That's where I first met her. And she has done stints in senior positions in Queens and New York County in the DA's offices there. And then in 1993, she became Chief Assistant U.S. Attorney and later counsel to the U.S. Attorney in the Eastern District, who was Zach Carter, who is now the city's corporation counsel. In 1998, Barbara became Principal Deputy Solicitor General in the Clinton administration and briefly in 2001 served as Solicitor General after the change of administrations when she was the first woman to hold the solicitor position. She's argued 20 cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. Maybe she'll be doing a few more. And she's lived in New York City since 1982 with her husband, Martin Halpern, and her son, Robert, who... I was just sharing, regrettably, like my daughter, of around the same age, is an actor in New York City, a very challenging profession. Um, as I said, I first met the Attorney General when she worked for Liz Holtzman, and her sister Susie, who lives in Sacramento, was a classmate of mine at Radcliffe, and I know she's very proud of her big sister. Nonetheless, when I gave her the link to watch this on live stream, she said it was too early in the morning, and she'll look at it later. So I can't say hi to Susie, but hi from Susie, Barbara. We're so grateful to you 
for being willing to spend some of your time with us this morning. Thank you. Please welcome Attorney General Barbara Underwood. Good morning, and thank you, Carol, for that warm introduction. And thank you to the Citizens Budget Commission for inviting me here today. It's an honor to speak to so many leaders in New York's civic community. This is a particularly challenging time for New York and for the country. Divisions are raw. It sometimes feels as if we're losing our shared sense of America and nothing can be done about it. That feeling of despair reminds me of another moment early in my career when I started work in the summer of 1971 as a law clerk for Justice Thurgood Marshall. He had a long career behind him fighting for equality and justice both before and after he joined the court. And we law clerks were eager to join that project. But just as we came on board, two vacancies occurred. Justices Black and Harlan stepped down. President Nixon was in a position to nominate two new justices who were expected to shift the court dramatically to the right. The new appointees were eventually Justices Rehnquist and Powell. The court had many important issues in the pipeline at that time, capital punishment, other criminal justice issues, race and sex discrimination, and women's reproductive freedom. Roe was not yet was in the pipeline at that point. Um, the court's swing to the right was a terrible blow for Justice Marshall and the values he held dear. He said he felt his life's work was about to slip away and he couldn't do anything about it. One day his wife, Sissy, came in to talk to the law clerks. She told us it was our job to buck up Justice Marshall's spirits to remind him that his voice was still needed and that it was still critically important for him to speak out, even if only in dissent. And so we did. I like to think that we made a difference. Justice Marshall threw himself into his dissents th that year. I just checked my volume of Marshall opinions from that year, and there are a lot of dissents. Um, facing the prospect of a civil rights rollback, he said he was laying down a marker for a brighter future. And that is what I am trying to do, too. The office of the New York Attorney General has never been stronger, and our work has never been more important. We're fighting for justice now, and we're also laying down a marker for a brighter future. At this moment, when so many New Yorkers are afraid of what federal policies will do to them and their families, and with a Supreme Court nominee who appears to have been selected for his potential to move us backwards, it's absolutely essential for the New York Attorney General's office to continue to protect the vulnerable and to defend and enforce the laws of our state. So when people ask me, do you ever despair? My answer is simple. No, we don't have time for that. It's time to keep our energy up, to focus on the future, and to do what we can to help ensure justice and equality for all New Yorkers. And there's a lot we can do. The current crisis at the national level has shown us all how important the states are in our federal system of government. There was a time when I was deeply skeptical of, a, of our federalist structure, of having two parallel systems of government, two parallel court systems at the state and national level. 
But over the course of my career, I've come to see federalism as an important means of checking extreme lurches in the national government, and never more so than now. My office, together with a coalition of like-minded state attorneys general, has been actively fighting in the courts. We've filed more than 140 legal actions, not all in the last two months, but, um, against the Trump administration's assaults in our environment, assaults on our environment, our workers, our health, our civil rights. For example, we've been working in a series of lawsuits to protect New York's residents and institutions and communities from the harms threatened by the administration's many anti-immigrant policies. We've been fighting to protect the 800,000 dreamers across the country, including 42,000 here in New York. As you know, these are undocumented immigrants who were brought here as children. When the administration announced it would end the policy of deferring immigration action for childhood arrivals, the policy known as DACA. My office led 17 AGs in a lawsuit and we won an injunction keeping the policy in place for now. We are continuing to litigate. We're part of a coalition of 18 AGs challenging the policy of family separation at the southwest border a policy that resulted in hundreds of children being placed in temporary custody here in New York, very far from their parents, causing extraordinary and appalling trauma. Much of the world has recognized that these families must be reunited, and so far, the courts have agreed. And we've brought suit to ensure a fair and equitable census in 1920, challenging the federal government's plan to demand citizenship status information as part of the census. That demand is likely to deter many immigrant families from responding. That would depress the count of New York residents and ultimately jeopardize our representation in Congress and in the Electoral College and the billions of dollars in federal funding that New York receives for education, infrastructure, infrastructure, and Medicaid, all of which is based on census data. And just yesterday, we sued to protect millions of dollars in federal funding in state, to state and local law enforcement agencies. This is funding that the Trump administration is threatening to withhold in order to punish so-called sanctuary jurisdictions. New York State alone stands to lose nearly $9 million in this funding, which supports vital public safety initiatives, including efforts to reduce gun violence and to combat the opioid epidemic. As several federal courts across the country have already held, the Trump administration does not have the authority to use these grants to bully state and local police into acting as federal immigration agents. Of course, our work challenging federal policies isn't limited to immigration. On health care, we have fought to protect New York's essential plan, which provides quality, affordable health care for more than 700,000 low-income New Yorkers under the Affordable Care Act. The Trump administration abruptly terminated nearly a billion dollars in annual federal funding for that plan, claiming that the money hadn't been properly appropriated by Congress. In response, we sued, explaining that it had, and 
the federal authorities have already agreed to restore most of that funding. We've already received a lot of it, and we're, we expect to have at least $750 million back of the billion that was withheld. We're also fighting to protect New Yorkers from environmental assaults on their health in the face of numerous federal rollbacks. To cite just one example, we led a coalition of 15 attorneys general in a lawsuit against the EPA after the agency failed to satisfy its obligation under the Clean Air Act to designate areas of the country affected by unhealthy levels of smog. More than 115 million Americans, including as many as two in three New Yorkers, are breathing dangerous levels of smog. The Trump administration EPA put the interests of polluters first. We refused to let them get away with that, and a federal court agreed with our argument, ordering the administration to fulfill their res responsibilities under the Clean Air Act. And the agency finally just made the necessary designation, I believe. And earlier this week, we sued to stop the assault on New York taxpayers through the rollback of the state and local tax deduction from federal income taxes, the deduction known as SALT. For the entire history of our nation, every single federal income tax law has provided a deduction for all or nearly all state and local taxes in order to protect the right of the states to invest as they found necessary. Last year, Congress drastically limited the deduction, imposing an enormous burden on taxpayers in our state and costing New Yorkers an additional $14.3 billion in 2018 alone. This cap is unconstitutional for two main reasons. First, it violates long-settled limits on the scope of the federal government's power to impose an income tax. And second, Congress deliberately targeted New York and similar states for unfavorable treatment, seeking to coerce our states into changing our fiscal policies and the important public investments and services those policies support. And beyond the legal, the technical arguments, limiting the SALT deduction poses a real threat to critical services that New Yorkers rely on, healthcare, public education, infrastructure invest investment, and much more. New York has made conscious choices to invest in these critical priorities, and those choices have paid off, helping to make New York one of the most vibrant states in America. The attack on SALT puts all that at risk. So far, I've been talking about litigation because that's the core mission of my office. But states can also fight for equality and justice by enacting laws and policies that protect and expand opportunity. That approach is critical on many fronts, especially protecting women's reproductive rights. With the Supreme Court poised to potentially upend decades of prote protection for those rights, New York must do what's necessary to protect women's rights to reproductive freedom here, no matter what happens in the Supreme Court. We must pass the Comprehensive Contraception Coverage Act introduced by my office to ensure that New Yorkers have access to cost-free contraception. 
even if the federal law mandating it is repealed or overturned. And New York must pass the Reproductive Health Act to codify Roe versus Wade and ensure that a woman's right to reproductive freedom will always be protected in New York, again, no matter what happens in the Supreme Court. New Yorkers should know this. Whatever happens in Washington, my office will do everything in our power to protect reproductive rights, fighting rollbacks, and enforcing New York laws. We need Albany to step up and act on this one. Let me be clear, we have a long and difficult road ahead, but we can all find strength and inspiration in the words of Justice Marshall from his 1992 speech accepting the Liberty Award. Democracy, he said, just cannot flourish amid fear. Liberty cannot bloom amid hate. Justice cannot take root amid rage. America must get to work. My office is already working at full speed and we will continue to do so, working to protect New Yorkers, their institutions, their communities. Thank you for inviting me here today. I look forward to your questions. career uh, of public service and for your leadership today. I, I sleep better knowing you're doing what you're doing. <laughs> you're better than a sleeping pill. <laughs> Last <Thank> month, you. <laughs> uh, you sued the Trump Foundation, President Trump, and his lovely children for violating New York Charities Act. Can you talk about that suit and what you think is the next step? Sure. Um, well, our charities regulation is an important part of the work of the office. Our investigation found that the Trump Foundation was being used really as a personal piggy bank to pay debts of the various Trump businesses to support political uh, activities. That is not the proper function of a charitable foundation. And so my office is holding that foundation accountable as it would hold any, hold accountable any charity that broke the law, even a charity run by the president. Um, as for next steps, we recently had a court appearance in which the judge indicated an intention to move quickly, move this case quickly. We're seeking bans on Trump and his children serving on charitable boards, we're seeking restitution and, we're, and penalties, and dissolution of the foundation and distribution of its funds under court supervision. Uh, I share Alaris, uh, thanks for all you're doing, and, and too bad it's gonna be not for that long a period, but um, you talked about the census. Could you elaborate a little bit on sort of what the under, how, how you can stop an undercount, and if to the degree you can't, what what it cost New York? Well, the particular undercount we're concerned about in our lawsuit is the undercount that will occur if people don't respond to the census because of the immigration question. The census itself and a correct count is critically important to New York, to any state, 
um, because those numbers, the result of the census, are used to determine uh, um, the number of representatives we have in, in Congress, to determine um, our representation in the Electoral College, and to determine the distribution of federal funding. So it's critically important that we not take action, that the federal government not take action that will depress New York's count. And of course, we have a great many immigrants here, so reducing the count of immigrants will uh, reduce our numbers quite substantially. Thank you. Um, I join Alaire and Ed in thanking you for, uh, for your service. And um, I, hope, uh, I hope you'll permit me to ask this question. Uh, do you intend to stay on under the next attorney general uh, and to continue the, you know, ensure the continuity of the critically important work that you're doing and your office is doing? And I ask this not only on behalf of people who uh, trade in New York state bonds, uh, but also uh, as a citizen. Um, as I told the legislature and as, as I'm happy to tell this group, I would be very happy to stay and help whoever the next elected attorney general is. That's, of course, up to the next attorney general. Again, thank you. Uh, can you explain more how you coordinate your attorney generals to bring these actions? And in substance, I'm really asking, do you get Republican when I started this in this job in 19, I mean in 2000 and whenever it was, seven, <laughs> um, there was a, a fair amount of bipartisan collaboration over the course of the, it's, it's all very informal. People call each other and try to convince each other to join. Um, there has been less and less of that, which I think is, a, is simply symptomatic of the decline of compromise and collaboration altogether in our, in our politics. But there is still some. There's, I mean, when there are issues that are of clear interest, when the interest is the interest of states as states, um, that's when there is often collaboration, when there's a threat to the power of states to choose to do as they wish, when there's an issue about the taxation of state um, municipal bonds or you know um, something that simply affects states as states, no matter what their politics. But there's much less collaboration than there was. We try very hard. In my role as Solicitor General, I was very much involved in attempting to coordinate states on, on amicus briefs. Um, and um, one way to get, in these times, to get a Republican state on board is to get two or three at a time, because it often happens that a state is reluctant to break the ice and be the only outlier. So we work at that. Hope to do more. So, uh, you know, I had thought of the Attorney General's Office as a law enforcement office, 
And I guess just hearing the issues you're emphasizing, uh, it seems, frankly, to be very, very politicized. Uh, uh, what is the role of law enforcement versus politics in the Attorney General's office? These lawsuits are all law enforcement. Um, we have, we, we bring these lawsuits because laws are being violated, or the Constitution, or including the rights of states, including uh, statutory rights. Uh, they have political ramifications, but we do, what we do, you're quite right, we do law enforcement. Now, the other thing I'll say is I spoke about, uh, we, I was asked, in, invited to speak about the, litig the federal litigation that we are doing in this, in this moment, and that's what I spoke about. We have lots of work that has nothing to do with that, of course. We enforce state laws. Our affirmative enforcement includes the Labor Bureau's work to protect workers uh, from wage theft, which is simply enforcing state laws protecting workers. We um, have a very large practice of uh, uh, cracking down on fraud in all its forms, whether it's broadband providers who misrepresent the, um, the services that they're providing, or financial advisors who defraud people, or car dealers, or fraud large and small. Um, we have a multi-state, I think bipartisan, investigation um, into opioid manufacturers and distributors, um, holding polluters accountable. And that's all the affirmative uh, corruption, anti-corruption prosecutions. We, ha we have a, a wide range of enforcement activities that don't involve the federal government at all. And then, of course, we have a large defensive practice. We defend the state, the state and state agencies, when their efforts are attacked, when the state is sued. And that's a very substantial part of our work, too. I could have a whole other speech about that. Previous attorney generals have used um, very, very broad acts to, in order to uh, um, to go after certain businesses, which basically the, could have the ability to move. One of the acts I'm thinking about is the Martin Act, which many many scholars have written uh, may actually have some vagueness issues on it. Um, what's your view of the Martin Act and these very, very broad um, some very old statutes which were dusted off and started to be used uh, starting originally, I guess, with Attorney General Spitzer. Um, what's your thought about using those uh, on a broad basis uh, um, when you look at business practices? The Martin Act is a critically important tool to protect investors from fraud. It was, in fact, looked to by, it was, it, it predates the federal securities laws, and it was looked to as an example and as a model for the federal securities laws. Um, I don't think it, I'm happy to defend it against charges of vagueness, um, and uh, uh, we've been using it, I think, judiciously and wisely and well uh, to protect New Yorkers across the state. Um, I would say that the determined campaign to attack the Martin Act, have it repealed, preempted, limited by the courts, is probably pretty good evidence of its effectiveness, because the campaign, of course, is coming from the targets. 
of that regime. You're basically running a very large public interest law firm, and maybe for the benefit of uh, some of the younger folks in the room, uh, you know, we have a lot of law students here this summer. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the role of young lawyers in the office, how you find them, and what they do? Well, what they do is everything we do. We have, we have uh, our newest, youngest lawyers uh, everywhere in the office. Um, I ran the, the appeals operation for a long time, and we have people there. And I know that they're uh, everywhere else in both the affirmative and, and defensive parts of the office. So that's what they do. Um, how do we find them? Well, the way they apply, they, we post on our website for vacancies. Sometimes people who are in the office tell us about friends of theirs who would also be interested. All, all the networking and, and, and recruiting and other, other ways that, uh, that we find people. Oh, people come do internships in the office in the, in the summer and make themselves valuable and sometimes become candidates for appointment in that way. Like the rest of us, uh, you will soon be part of the selection process for the next AG. You've served in the office and been around it for a long time. So I'm curious as to what you think the most important uh, criteria for what makes a good attorney general are, and by contrast, if there are some characteristics that you think are definitely not helpful when found in an AG? Well, first I want to say that I um, told the legislature and I'm telling you that I am not uh, endorsing or criticizing or otherwise engaging in the, um, in the current um, race. Um, Characteristics, well, it's good to be smart and a good lawyer, diplomatic and a good uh, negotiator and collaborator, you know, strong but not a bully. Um, you know, moderation in all things is, is helpful. Um, I think uh, maybe the most important thing, and this isn't really, for any head of any office, is to select and have around you people who can help you do the job, who share your values, and who maybe have some of the strengths or experiences that you don't have, um, because nobody can do a job like this alone. Um, so I think that um, uh, some of the wonderful people who are helping me right now are sitting here. Um, I think the people have, having a good, uh, good support, a good system, of, a, a good team is what is a lot of what it takes. You've mentioned um, quite a few federal litigations that you're involved in. What do you see as the top priorities for the balance of your term, not on the federal side, but just other issues? Well, we have important cases in the pipeline. Um, you know, for the balance of my term, it wouldn't be possible to launch a whole new uh, initiative and bring it to fruition. We have an important case, uh, an, an important case involving broadband 
companies that have essentially misrepresented what they provide. Um, we have some important environment. We have a, we have quite a lot of important environmental cases that uh, whose outcome will affect New Yorkers' health and and well-being. Um, I think some of these immigration matters, which are federal matters to be sure, um, are are well along the way to resolution and will have a huge impact on New Yorkers. I'd like to to bring those some of those home. Um, and we're busy at work trying to figure out at this point what, um, how, how best to marshal our resources to have the best and most uh, productive impact for New Yorkers in this time. Yeah. Thank you so much for your remarks. Um, as, the, as, a, uh, as the separately elected Attorney General, uh, can you, or, well, you're not the elector, but as, as, the, <laughs> as that office, can you talk about how the office works with the other two parts of the state government, the controller and the governor? Are there, are there always common interests? Are there different interests? How you interact with those different parts of the government? As smoothly as we can. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, there, there are many, many ways we interact and, um, and, and government works best when we are collaborating. Sometimes the collaboration doesn't work as well as others, but for example, um, we have a wonderful partnership with the comptroller who refers to us matters of uh, uh, basically fraud on the public fisc or corruption, um, and that's something that we really developed in the last few years. Um, We have, uh, we represent state agencies um, and work with them to defend their initiatives and to defend them against attacks. Um, we also work with the, um, with the governor and his agencies in uh, bringing affirmative litigation. Um, like all relationships, <laughs> sometimes it works better than others, but, uh, that's where the diplomatic skills come in, right? You talked about uh, New York State preserving women's reproductive rights, but if you have a balance on the court, uh, Supreme Court that is anti-abortion, what's the worst damage it could do and could it impair New York's ability to sort of set its own course on Um, it could, but it's not likely to. I think that the, the, the realistic worst damage it could do would be basically to either overrule Roe against Wade and find there is no such constitutional right, or more likely drastically limit it, as there are many, many cases in the pipeline in the lower courts right now that, um, that uh, severely regulate and restrict abortion, and it could hold, I suppose, that they're all consistent with the little shred of reproductive right that the court might be willing to recognize. But 
I think there's no reason to expect that the court would try to impair the state's rights to protect abortion more uh, to a greater extent than the federal government does. And that's why I think the, the, the critical course of action and, and an effective one for New York and for other like-minded states would be to enact statutory or, or constitute state constitutional protections which would stand. I think we've been a little bit lazy on that front until now because we've thought, well, there's a federal constitutional right. What do we need state statutes for? But if with the federal right in jeopardy, we need state statutes. And I think they will stand if, if enacted. Thank you very much. Bye.